0: Where it started. Hello, this is Paul This is Laura And I'm Alton We are Team Derringer And you are listening to Derringer Discoveries
1: Where we take you, the listener, on an adventure
0: A music adventure
2: Almost two decades after the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC here in the U.S., issued radio licenses to colleges and universities, a new sound of music was birthed. These student run radio stations, staffed by volunteer music enthusiasts, provided outlets for music that did not fit the mainstream.
1: That's right, listeners. Sometime between 1983 and 1984, college rock was born. The name was derived more from the medium by which it was delivered, college radio stations, than as a genre of music. The music itself was eclectic, hook-heavy, and guitar-jangly. The style was an outgrowth of the new wave and post-punk music scenes of the late 70s.
2: You are
0: listening to Derringer Discoveries. The new genre would expand to other cities throughout the U.S., Notable acts included the replacements in Husker Du from Minneapolis. And the Pixies, who were out of Boston.
1: Yeah, Alton and many British alternative acts incorporated elements of the new genre into their music. Recognizable UK-based acts that often fell into the college rock category include The Cure, The Smiths, and The Laws.
3: Day's gray and
2: Wednesday too, Thursday, I Rolling Stone magazine points to Athens, Georgia, here in the U.S., and home of the University of Georgia. Go, dogs. Go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Laura. As the birthplace of college rock. Many college rock bands originated in Athens, most notably today's featured artist, R.E.M.
0: And listeners, our esteemed guest host today is a singer-songwriter from Yorkshire, England, currently residing in Fukuoka, Japan. It's our pleasure to introduce to you Brian Cooper, a talented musician, recording artist, and now an honorary Derringer. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hi,
3: everyone. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm really honored. And uh, I noticed that even Brian May hasn't been on your show yet. So I feel <laughs> I'm sort of baffled that I'm ahead of the queue. But thank you. Um, I really admire the work that you do and all the help that you do for new artists.
1: Brian, we are so happy to have you join us today. And we are super excited to share some of your music with our listeners.
2: That's right, Listeners. You may recognize Brian Cooper's name, or at least his music, because he has appeared many times on our Turnip Music Radio Top 25 chart.
0: So Brian, do you care to share with our listeners how you ended up in Fukuoka, all the way from Yorkshire?
3: Sure. Well... In England, the momentum from my previous music projects was kind of tapering off a little, and I was about to lose my my job as well because of a merger. So timing wise, I decided to make a fresh start and have a bit of an adventure. I got some teaching qualifications and found employment in Japan as an English teacher. And that's what brought me here.
0: Fantastic.
1: That's awesome.
2: Brian, tell us about the bands that you played in, in the UK.
3: Right, so um, I started playing the guitar when I was sixteen, and uh, I formed a band with some of my uh, my friends. And after a few years, we actually got signed to Sire Records um, by Seymour Stein, yeah. who passed away recently. Um, so that's the guy that signed uh, Madonna, The Smiths, and Depeche Mode. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, we thought, all right, we're on the we're on the path to rock and roll royalty. <laughs> Um, we made an album, um, that's as far as things got. The record company decided to pass on it and kind of left us to rot really. So that was quite a painful experience for all of us. I'm sure. Um, we didn't really recover from it. So we kind of went our separate ways and I, I mean, I don't want to get too heavy, but I went into a dark period. I didn't touch my guitar for about five years. Um, and then I got myself together, went to university as a mature student and ended up forming another band and that rekindled my uh, passion for playing the guitar again
1: you are listening to derringer discoveries with listeners in more than 30 countries Brian, we see from your social media accounts that you've been playing live music in Japanese clubs lately. How's your music been received and what's that experience been like for you?
3: Um, yeah, Japanese audiences are super polite, as you'd expect. So it's always a pleasure. Plus, it doesn't matter too much if I get my lyrics wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, Brian, you've really created some fantastic songs over the last couple of years. We'd love to share a snippet of one of your songs with our listeners. Do you have a favorite? And tell us a little bit about
3: it. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to choose Robots on Mute, which is my previous single. It represents a bit of a landmark for me uh, in terms of production, because obviously now in this era, we not only have to be musicians, we have to be engineers and producers, which has been the hardest part for me. My other songs that I've done, I'll probably want to go back and remix them. But this one is probably the first where I can kind of put my flag in the sand and say, okay, this is exactly as I want it to sound.
0: Listeners, here's a snippet of Brian Cooper's song, Robots on Mute. A fool said to me
2: that's a snippet of Robots on Mute, which by the way was recently voted onto the Turnip Music Radio Top 25 by our listeners.
3: It your fault. It your fault.
2: And it has rotated off of the Top 25, but is now forever on Keepers, a playlist that we've created to highlight the songs that used to be on the charts. And this song, Robots on Mute, is by today's special guest, Brian Cooper.
1: You are listening to Derringer Discoveries, a music adventure podcast.
2: Listeners, we feel uniquely qualified to talk about college rock. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, it's generally accepted that college rock came to prominence between 1983 and 1984. Though we're dating ourselves thanks a lot, Alton, for putting this in. <laughs> though we're dating ourselves, all three members of Team Derringer, Alton, Laura, and myself, Paul, were in fact attending college during this time period.
0: Paul, you use the word attending. I prefer <laughs> to say enrolled.
1: Oh, come on, Alton. You didn't enjoy your classes?
0: I'll just leave that right there. (laughs) But I can vividly remember the first time I heard REM. I was at a good friend's apartment at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I think you all know who I'm talking about. He joined us for episode 34, Life After Rush. Yeah, you're talking about the one and only John B. Derringer. legend himself. Anyway, I believe while we were hanging out at John's apartment, his older brother Dave put on R.E.M.'s 1983 album, Murmur, and I was immediately hooked. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so Alton, I can't remember exactly where I was, but I do know I was introduced to REM by my younger brother around that same time, same album. Their sound was just so different than anything else out there at the time. And I was intrigued by Michael Stipe.
0: So, Paul, when did you first hear R.E.M.? Do you remember? First time I heard
2: R.E.M. was when I was in college. I was introduced to R.E.M. by a number of my college mates. since this would be about 83,
1: 1983.
2: Yourself, Brady, Their breakthrough song was Radio Free Europe, which was released as a single in 1981. it made it onto their 1983 album Murmur.
1: On October 6, 1983, roughly 6 months after the release of Murmur, R.E.M made their national television debut on Late Night with David Letterman.
2: I mentioned earlier, the Los Angeles Times just named this album one of the five best released so far in 1983. It's called Murmur. It's by a group of gentlemen from Athens, Georgia, called R.E.M., and we're happy to have them making their national television debut with us tonight. Please welcome R.E.M.
1: They played Radio Free Europe and a yet untitled and unreleased song. That song eventually appears as South Central Rain on R.E.M.'s 1984 album, Reckoning.
0: She never calls and i can remember staying up to watch rem on letterman letterman really did seem to have a knack for finding some fantastic up-and-coming artists did you all happen to catch it i didn't see it i didn't realize it david letterman had featured him
1: i didn't either
3: yeah i'm gonna go on youtube after this and try <laughs> and find it me too Yay,
0: luistert naar derentia discoveries a music podcast
2: Brian, you mentioned in a recent email that you are a fan of R.E.M., but that you're more of a product of the early 90s indie rock and grunge scene. When did you first get into R.E.M.?
3: I was aware of them when Losing My Religion came out, of course. but it was only when Drive came out in 1992 that it kind of piqued my interests. I loved the, the bleakness of that song and uh, kind of had a very naked production. Smash, smash
0: crack, push around, tie another one to the ass.
3: It was so different to the other stuff I was listening to at the time, like Nirvana and Faith No More and Pearl Jam. So when I listened to Automatic for the People, it was it just it just seemed like an achingly beautiful album. Then I actually worked backwards through their back catalogue, one album at a time. So first with Out of Time and then eventually ending with Murmur and the Chronic Town EP. So that's how I got into them.
2: You are listening
0: to Derringer Discoveries.
1: with listeners in more than 30 countries.
2: Listeners REM experienced years of underground success releasing critically acclaimed albums such as Murmur, along with 1984's Reckoning, 1985's Fables of the Reconstruction, 1986's Life's Rich Pageant, and 1987's Document. These were all released on the IRS record label In 1988, REM switched labels and released their next album, Green, to global success under the Warner Brothers label.
1: The album produced REM's first number one hits with Stand and Orange Crush. Both songs peaked at number one on Billboard's alternative airplay and mainstream rock charts. Guys, green is my all-time favorite REM album.
0: Futtlingen, Deutschland. Hört Deringer Discovery. So Team Derriger, let's all pick our favorite R.E.M. song, share what year it was released, and what album it was on. Brian, since you're our guest, you get to go first.
3: Cool. So, like yourself, Alton, I much prefer their IRS material. The hipster in me wants to choose Radio Free Europe or So Central Rain. (laughs) But I'm going to go with... Find the River from 1992, off Automatic for the People. It's just got a gorgeous vocal melody and that chorus hits me every every time. I have got to find the river Better. Run through my head and fall away. Laura, what's your favourite?
1: Brian, my favorite R.E.M. song is Untitled from Green, which was released in 1988. It's a very uncomplicated song, and to me, it just beautifully conveys the emotion that you feel when you're missing someone. And from what I understand, Michael Stipe wrote this song for his parents because he missed them when the band was touring. And the song title is a clever nod to hidden tracks that were sometimes put on albums back in those days. Supposedly, the band just pretended like the song didn't exist, but I, for one, am glad it does. Paul, what about you? You're up next.
3: You are
0: listening to Derringer Discoveries, a music adventure podcast.
2: Thank you, Lars. When I was in college, my college mates introduced me to REM. I played in a band called Melting Pot. We were a covers band. We played some REM songs out and eventually joined that band, Melting Pot. And there were several songs that we played that I loved. But interestingly, one song we did not play that I loved the most is a song that was written by Mike Mills, Now, if you look at the credits, they always credited the whole band for all their songs. But the truth be told, the song was written by their bass player, Mike Mills. It was released as a single, but it did not hit a single chart. How do you like that? My favorite R.E.M. song did not hit any charts. It was sung by Michael Stipe on the record, but if you went to see them live, often Mike Mills would sing it since he was the one who wrote it. And what I love about it is he's pleading to his girlfriend, Ingrid. He's saying, Ingrid, please don't go back to Rockville. That's a snippet of my favorite R.E.M. song from 1984, Don't Go Back to Rockville. Alton,
0: wrap us up with your favorite song by R.E.M. Well, Team Derringer, there's a lot to choose from. I owned every R.E.M. studio, EP, or album from 1982's Chronic Town until 1994's Monster their song got a little too mainstream and pop for me when they released out of time in 1991 that's the album that had losing my religion and shiny happy people on it shiny Automatic for the People was released the following year and was quite a bit better for me, but they completely lost me on Monster, which was released in 1994. If I have to pick a favorite song, I'll go back to the 1980s and R.E.M.'s 1986 album entitled Life's Rich Pageant, and I'm going to pick the song, Begin the Begin. think that song rocks Let's begin again. Begin again.
2: Let's begin again. you are listening to derringer discoveries By 1988 and continuing through 1997, R.E.M. enjoyed international success and rock stardom. However, in 1995, health problems plagued the band. In March, while in Switzerland, drummer Bill Berry suffered a brain aneurysm
0: and collapsed on stage. Surgery was immediately needed. Though Berry had recovered after a month... In July, Mike Mills, the bass player, underwent abdominal surgery to remove an intestinal adhesion. And a month after that, lead singer Michael Stipe had to have emergency surgery to repair a hernia. They have a bad string of bad luck.
1: Yes, they did. And in October 1997, drummer Bill Berry, after months of discussion and contemplation, decided to quit the band, but said that he would not quit if it caused the breakup of the band.
2: The remaining members, Buck, Stipe, and Mills, decided to carry on as a three-piece Um, Don't you mean Trio?
1: (laughs) The Trio navigated the strange new waters and eventually released their next album, 1998's Up. Compared to the popularity of their earlier albums, Up was a commercial failure, only selling 900,000 copies in the U.S. and only 2 million copies worldwide.
0: By comparison, three of the four previous albums reached four times platinum, and that remaining album out of the group reached platinum. Paul, remind us again how many albums a band has to sell to reach platinum status. Yes, Alton. Uh
1: Uh-oh. Is this going to be some trivia? Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's
2: it's trivia, but I'm going to limit it to the U.S. since we're talking about platinum in the U.S. In the U.S., for an album to sell 1 million units, that is platinum status. So, what Alton is saying is Up did not achieve platinum status in the U.S., although it did achieve gold status. Gold status is 500,000 units in the U.S. Brian you indicated in an email that you had all of the rem albums by all do you mean all
3: yeah i bought all the albums on cassette and then cd including the various compilations albums that they did i'm sure you're aware that rem for some reason had about six or seven different (laughs) compilation albums it was bizarre
2: Um, they just they they could people bought it right that's why they were putting it out live albums compilation albums
3: they should have made a best-of-the-best-of album. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I bought all the albums right up until the final album, because by then I was just buying the albums for completism, you know, just to have the collection. But I think Collapse into now was 2011. Yeah, uh, it was. And I just moved to Japan then, and I kind of stopped buying CDs uh, because all my collection was still in England. So I think I bought it on iTunes. So technically, yeah, I guess I have bought all the albums.
2: Yeah, iTunes counts. They get royalties from that. <laughs>
1: absolutely. <Yeah.
0: laughs> wow, that's hardcore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, I think it's safe to say you're a huge REM fan.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess my interest now isn't as vibrant as it was years ago. But definitely when they were at their their peak, I was absolutely obsessed with them.
2: Listeners, Brian bought all of their albums, the last one on Apple iTunes. Let's quickly recap how these later albums did. REM's album Reveal, released in May of 2001, was the last album by REM to reach RIAA's chart. Reveal achieved gold status, 500,000 copies in the U.S., but their three subsequent albums, 2004's Around the Sun, 2008's Accelerate, and the one Brian was talking about, 2011 Collapse into Now, all failed to sell enough copies to register with the RIAA, though they did reach the charts of other countries, which tend to have, I guess I can say this out loud, they tend to have a lower bar in some of the other countries. It doesn't take as many album sales to achieve either gold or platinum status.
1: A few of R.E.M.'s singles off the albums Paul mentioned enjoyed minor successes on the U.S. rock and U.S. adult alternative airplay charts.
3: I think a lot of those albums, especially Up, like towards the end of their career, uh, if you listen to Up, it almost sounds like a lockdown album because Bill Berry left, so they kind of used drum machines quite a lot. So it almost sounds like a Michael Stipe solo album. So I think that material kind of lacks direction. Although to kind of defend it, I do think that although the albums were weak, the singles off the albums were among some of my favorite songs, like Leaving New York.
2: Yeah, Leaving New York actually does really well on Spotify, it's streaming Mm, very high.
3: Yeah, that's, that really resonates with me because of the subject matter about leaving a city to, jo- to, to live in another. Yeah, there's a lyric in the song, it's easier to leave than to be left behind. Ah. And that strikes a chord with me because here I am going off on my adventure and then my friends are kind of left behind thinking, oh no, we've just lost our friend. And then there's Imitation of Life from Reveal, that's a great song. The Great Beyond was from the Man on the Moon soundtrack. That was a really strong single. And the final song, it's kind of drenched in pathos, was uh, We All Go Back to Where We Belong. I think that was a beautiful record as well.
0: Are listening to Derringer Discoveries?
2: On September 21st, 2011, REM disbanded. So that leaves us with our twenty-five thousand-dollar question: Did REM jump the shark? Brian, assuming you know what we're referring to when we say Jump the Shark, and if we don't, you can ask us, but our question for you, Brian, is did R.E.M. jump the shark by continuing as a three-piece trio after Bill Berry quit the band?
3: Well, didn't they sign a five-album deal yeah. just before Bill Berry left?
2: Yeah, with Warner Brothers. Re-signed with the Warner Brothers for, uh, what, $60 million? It was pretty amazing.
3: Yeah. Timing-wise, it sounds like it was an unfortunate... I think they were contractually obligated to jump the shark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're saying the money was so good that they they could not turn away. You know the five album deal. They were like, "We got to do it." Well,
3: I, I think maybe they signed the al- the five album deal before the drummer left. So perhaps they didn't have a choice. Michael Stipe gave a really amusing quote. He, he was asked about how they would carry on as a three piece trio, <laughs> and um, he said. A three-legged dog is still a dog it just has to learn how to run differently Mm, which i thought was quite cool yeah Uh, so i'm I'm glad that they stuck around if only to make those singles that i mentioned before however uh, i think that rem's journey to success was such a long organic process that bill berry was an integral part of that and i think him leaving changed the whole dynamic and i think that showed through in their music what do you think laura
1: Oh, Brian, I hate to say it, but yes, I do think they jumped the shark. And to me, it just seems obvious by the record sales that the band just didn't work without Barry. Paul, how about you?
2: Yeah, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon here. <laughs> I believe that R.E.M. should have called it quits. I know the money was really good, but they should have called it quits in September 1996, thereabouts, after their final studio album with Bill Berry, and that was New Adventures in High Five. When Bill Berry quit, the others should have taken the cue to call it a day. This would be a good time because they would have 15 years, 15 years of a, a legacy. Now they've kind of muddied it with all this other legacy afterwards that sort of diminishes what we think of when we think of REM I just feel like if they'd called it quits we would have a phenomenal catalog of 81 to 96 97 yeah however I will note that they are still when you go to Spotify they're still one of the top 400 most listened to recording artists on Spotify so right there it tells you they still have a legacy they are still an amazing band
0: Alton you were a big REM fan what do you think Well, Paul, I agree with you. I I think they jumped the shark too. I also agree that they were a phenomenal band when they were together, but I really think they were heading towards the ramp on the previous album in 1994's Monster. Well guys, since we have all said that REM jumped the shark, do you think that they crossed the Rubicon?
2: Crossing the Rubicon is reaching the point of no return. (laughs) <laughs> Brian, crossing the Rubicon. Jumping the shark is one thing, but crossing the Rubicon is means you can never return. You can never come back. And I'll jump in. I'll say no, no, they did not cross the Rubicon because they're still one of the top 400 most listened to recording artists in the world. So there's no way they could have crossed the Rubicon, uh, as much as I love saying that.
3: Yeah, I think their legacy is intact. Yeah, exactly. Especially as the singles were always so strong. So even in this digital streaming era, I think people will always find a pathway through the singles and discover the back catalogue.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that their back catalog is what keeps them from crossing the Rubicon. Nowadays, I think probably their relevancy has passed us by. What do you think, Laura?
1: So I definitely don't think they crossed the Rubicon. It's obvious because people are still listening to their earlier work and they just have a whole new generation of fans. And personally, I still listen to green all the time. Yeah.
2: All right. So, listeners, send your heated, angry letters to Alton's attention, even though we all said they jumped the shark. Uh, direct everything to Alton. He deserves the hate mail. Brian, do you have any thoughts on R.E.M.? Do you wish that we hadn't gone down the route of the jumping the shark?
3: Um, no, I, I can un- completely understand that point of view. I think they're a band who will be remembered as people with enormous integrity and humility, yeah. um, o- often to the point of self-deprecation. And I think that should in their music, which is why it's so appealing to people, especially the IRS material. Yeah. It just sounds like four guys in a room playing unpretentious music.
2: Brian, it's been great having you with us today. What's up next for
3: you? Well, it's funny you should mention that, Paul. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, I am releasing a new song on the same day that this very episode is scheduled to be released. Uh, the name of the song is Kind Twist of Fate
2: excellent let's play a snippet of kind twist of fate by brian cooper of Brian Cooper's new song, released on the day this episode is released. It's called Kind Twist of Fate. Brian, tell our listeners, what is this song about?
3: Well, it's about someone who has no luck in love, but he realizes that it's probably been a blessing in disguise. It's a very tongue-in-cheek track, and it's definitely not autobiographical. (laughs) He said, avoiding eye contact. It's quite an upbeat song, um, and it also has a 45-second avant-garde guitar solo. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? That's right. And and
2: that's you playing the guitar solo, correct?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I I did some research into Spotify's algorithms, and apparently they really love 45-second long guitar solos.
2: (laughs) I just hope it's at the beginning.
3: Yeah, Oh, yeah. That, that'll that be for my third prog rock album, I think.
2: Well, there you have it. Kind Twist of Fate. Do us a favor and go stream it. Kind Twist of Fate is going to be available on Spotify and all of the other digital streaming platforms. And if you do nothing else after this episode, play Kind Twist of Fate by Brian Cooper. Kind
3: Twist of Fate. The coolest heartbreaks. Kind Twist of Fate.
1: Brian, before we wrap things up, do you have any shout outs for friends, family, fans?
3: Um, Yeah, I want to say thank you in alphabetical order so that they don't argue with me. Uh, (laughs) I want to say thank you to my friends, uh, Bob, Ed and Innes, who have always been supportive of me. They were in my bands in England and even now they're they're still my biggest fans and best friends. So I want to thank them and say that publicly.
0: Well, Brian, if our listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find out some more?
3: Um, I'd love it if if people could visit my website, briancooperofficial.com. All my social links are on there. I'm probably most active on Instagram. So my handle for that is at brian underscore cooper. If you sign up to my mailing list on my website, you get a free download and a cheese and mushroom pizza. (laughs) oh yeah i'd be
2: careful they're gonna take you up on that brian that could be expensive sorry i'm just getting
3: some updates in my earpiece apparently we're out of cheese and mushroom pieces (laughs) now but you'll get a download
1: brian thank you so much for joining us today this has been a lot of fun and it has been great hearing all of your insights about rem and hearing more about your music Listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Please be sure to subscribe to our newsletter via our website, DerringerDiscoveries.com.
0: You can follow us on social media too. We're at Derringer Discoveries on Facebook and at DerringerPod on Instagram and Twitter and are dabbling with this new platform called Threads. Reach out to us on one of these platforms. Send us an old school email at feedback at DerringerDiscoveries.com or use the contact page on our website. You've been
2: listening to Derringer Discoveries, a music adventure podcast. Follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's easy. Just click
0: follow. Listeners, it's the end of the show and we know it and we feel fine. And we hope you do too. See you next time. currently residing in fukuoka japan did i get it right
3: yes
2: (laughs) so
0: am i hearing this right you
2: used ai to warn people about the the problems with ai
3: yeah that's just my 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 warped (laughs) sense of humor that's that's some dark humor
0: there brian (laughs) hey
3: carol have you got rem by green (laughs) i was so embarrassed
2: (laughs) i like that Just edit that out, Alton. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely asking for trouble uh, going down the route we went. I'm going to get a lot of mail on this, and it'll be the kind of mail that, like I say, direct it to Alton, please. By the way, Paul, what city was Brian from again? Oh, it's that city that I like for Brian to say, because he says it so well.
3: Uh, Fukuoka.
2: (laughs) Give it a try, Paul. Fukuoka. Is that close? Nailed it. All right. I was just listening to Brian and mimicking it. (laughs) It's
3: it's close enough to avoid the expletive button. (laughs) We don't want a little E in front of this episode.
1: Uh, No, we do not. (laughs) It's the end of the world as we know it.